According to the ballad that made him famous, John Henry did battle with a steam-powered drill, beat the machine, and then immediately died. Folklorists have long thought John Henry to be mythical, but historian Scott Nelson has discovered that he was a real person, a 19-year-old from New Jersey who was convicted of theft in a Virginia court in 1866, sentenced to 10 years in the penitentiary, and put to work building the CNL Railroad. There, at Lewis Tunnel, Henry and other prisoners worked alongside steam-powered drills. In his book, Dr. Nelson pieces together the biography of the real John Henry. It is also the story of work songs, songs that not only turned Henry into a folk hero, but also in reminding workers to slow down or die, were a tool of resistance and protest. Scott Reynolds Nelson is the prize-winning author of four books on 19th century American history. The New York Times recently called him, quote, a fascinating guide to the grim landscape of Reconstruction. His book, Steel Driving Man, won three national awards in 2007, including the National, book, uh, national Award for Arts Writing. His children's book about how historians do research, Ain't Nothing But a Man, won seven national awards in 2008, including the Jane Addams Prize for the best book on social justice. On October 1st, 2008, he compared the Panic of 1873 to the developing economic crisis in America in the Chronicle of Higher Education. His article was reprinted in 12 languages in financial newspapers around the world and predicted many of the financial events of the last two years. Legum Professor of History at the College of William and Mary, he is currently at work on a book entitled Crash, an Uncommon History of America's Financial Disasters. He is currently a fellow at the Charles Warren Center at Harvard University. So please join me in welcoming Scott Nelson, who will speak to us about that steel-driving man, John Henry, the untold story of an American legend. Thanks so much. I want to start by showing you some music. Give me a second here. John Henry, the legend, uh, according to my um, folklorists and, and, and others, the strongest man there was, a powerful, powerful man who fought against a steam drill and died. John it was one Henry of the first blues songs. Was a little baby boy, sitting home in mother's knee, crying that big in a tunnel on that wire. Mama's gonna be the death of me. Mama's gonna be the death of me. There are over 200 versions of the song. It was also one of the first country songs. Henry, one little baby, sing on it, Well, it's gonna be the death of me. Cap 
Martin said to John Henry, I'm gonna bring my steam drill around. Gonna bring my steam drill out on the job. I'm gonna pop that steel on down, Lord, Lord. Pop that steel on down. John Henry said to his boss man, he said a man ain't nothing but a man. But before I let your steam drill beat me down, I'll die with this hammer in my hand. Well, I'll die with this hammer in my hand. So that's John Henry. Uh, John Henry is, is, this is the legendary John Henry that you might have seen uh, in, a, in a children's book. Uh, this is the first uh, I had heard of John Henry. He was a powerful man who could drive two nine-pound hammers, uh, a track liner on the, uh, one of the major railroads who's brought out to a tunnel. And the tunnel, uh, supposedly the Big Bend Tunnel on the C&O Road, the Chesapeake and Ohio Railroad, um, and in the story, in a song, John Henry uh, engages, it challenges the steam drill to a race. And the two of them, side by side, hammer into the side of a mountain. And they're making uh, sort of robin's nest size holes in the side of a mountain for uh, dynamite charges. And the dynamite charges will, will blast and make the, make the holes in the tunnel. And so John, in the story, John Henry defeats the steam drill. Now, this is a kind of a fanciful image. This is from an African-American artist in the uh, 1940s, uh, Palmer Hayden. This is actually what a steam drill looked like in 1868, <laughs> uh, 69, it's a much more uh, involved contraption. And uh, it's uh, the, uh, incredibly bulky and incredibly difficult. Actually, the power is, is transmitted uh, pneumatically, like with blasts of air, rather than electrically, uh, the, the, this being the 1860s. But at the end of the day, having defeated the steam drill, uh, this is another African-American artist, Fred Becker. Um, John Henry uh, falls to the ground. Uh, and he asks uh, for a cool drink of water before he dies, recognizing that this is the end of his days. John, John Henry falls flat, and having defeated the steam drill, uh, is nonetheless dead at the end of the day. And uh, uh, Polly, his, his wife, comes to um, uh, visit him and to lay track along the lines of the same railroad that John Henry was at. That's what I knew about John Henry when I first started this project. Um, I, I, beyond that, I, I didn't know much. I had originally written a history of the Southern Railway, um, a book, book called Iron Confederacies, a history from, of the railway corridor as it's built during the Civil War and after um, from Richmond to Atlanta. And so I had followed the, uh, the, the career of that railroad and knew about all the competing railroads. And this is the Chesapeake and Ohio Railroad. Uh, comp big competitor to the Southern Railway uh, in this period. And I know that the, knew that the CNO uh, extended uh, at the time from when it was, it was uh, finally finished from Richmond uh, to the Ohio River. And um, that, that's so I, I knew this about it. And I knew a little bit about the origins of the song. Uh, this is uh, the first appearance of the song is uh, right around 1908, 1909. Someone hears the song of John Henry and it's, it's uh, already by this point traveled all over the South, so that many, many people know this song, but it's not a song that's been copyrighted. Uh, John Lomax, um, the father of Alan Lomax, and, and at the time uh, an English professor in, uh, um, in Texas, comes across uh, the song and, and comes up with the first full transcription or, or full enough transcription of the song in 1915. And um, Lewis Chapel uh, follows him in uh, uh, shortly after in the 1920s. And so this is, this the song of John Henry, the thing that's peculiar about it is that it's a song that wasn't copyrighted, but which was, tra was transmitted all over the South, that African-American and white audiences, uh, white performers knew this song, although it had never been apparently transcribed or written down. And so it was a song that was deeply embedded in the South. You'd go to um, East Georgia, uh, uh, East, Eastern South Carolina, Western North Carolina, Western Virginia, uh, even in Texas, the song had traveled all over the place. And as you see in this, in a, uh, a couple of folklorists, and a folklorist is basically uh, an English professor who's stuck in the South. Uh, <laughs> it's somebody who starts out you know, reading Dryden or something like that and then needs, needs to figure out something, something to do, uh, collect raw material, and so they, they travel around and collect, uh, collect folklore. This is really how folklore begins as a, as a profession. And so people like uh, Lomax and, and Chapel and others hear these songs sung by African-American um, musicians, all over the uh, traveling musicians, and they collect these songs and then they sort of speculate on uh, where they came from. 
The trouble is that when they travel in the 1920s to try to figure out the origins of this song, this song was already out. Second recorded country song in the history of the United States by Fiddlin' John Carson. Now, when Ralph Peer had initially um, heard this song, he was a, he was a traveling for um, a, a record company, and um, uh, he'd been asked to travel down to Georgia to record Fiddlin' John Carson. He made a few uh, sample recordings. He, he uh, transferred them to um, records, and uh, he then, he then um, wrote back to um, the uh, record company, I think I'm pretty sure it's Atlantic Records, and told them that Fiddlin' John Car Carson was pluperfect awful and uh, was not, not really worth recording. And so he, they printed up uh, 100 copies of the, of the record and, and left them at a drugstore in, in, uh, in Georgia, uh, near Atlanta, and uh, started to travel up to New York. By the time he arrived in New York, the drugstore had, had already uh, written two or three times to say that they had sold out on the records and uh, wanted, wanted more copies. And this is really the birth, the birth of country music, and it's the, one of the first uh, recordings of the Song of John Henry. Now, in the 20s, uh, when they, people start to travel around, there's a few things that have changed about music. One of them is um, that juke joints, places where people go out and listen uh, to music and dance a little bit too close together, uh, I, I now have um, these things called jukeboxes, where you can put in uh, a nickel and uh, listen to any, any piece of recorded music. And uh, um, the, it, the Bureau Engraving, and uh, uh, sorry, the Mint, U.S. Mint, had to... Um, issue uh, $100 million more in nickels uh, by 1928, because these were so popular, these, these jukeboxes. There were also radios, that, um, radio sets, and not a lot of people had them, but uh, they, were, they were available. You could hear them uh, in the latter part of the 20s uh, in, in many places. And so what happened then, after recorded music and after the sort of wide dissemination of recorded music, is that um, people who knew the song, who'd learned it from their uh, parents or grandparents, uh, now no longer had that song in their mind, the song they'd learned. They'd lear they, they were increasingly had this song in their mind, this first recorded version of the song of John Henry. And so the folklore is then gets harder because people, it's, it, you, you come to people and you say, have you ever heard of John Henry's? And for many people it's, oh, you, you mean the Fiddle and John Carson version of, of John Henry. Uh, so it's the, the process of c coming, doing folklore after recorded music is much harder. And that's the problem that two... Uh, Folklorists found in traveling up to West Virginia, looking for the Big Bend Tunnel on the C&O Road, which shows up in these uh, songs and interviewing people. The first person who went up, uh, Lewis Chapel, uh, traveled to this region and uh, discovered that um, Chapel was a peculiar character, quite a quite a conservative uh, uh, guy, and so he he interviewed white and black folks in um, near. Uh, Talcott, the town of Talcott, which is near where the Big Bend Tunnel is, and, and uh, a young man, a young black man came to talk to him uh, about the third day that he was out, and um, Chapel said, you're a damn liar, and chased him out uh, after a, a, a little bit of discussion. And after that, for some reason, no African Americans would come uh, talk to either uh, Chapel or Guy Johnson, who came uh, after him, and it was very difficult, so he could only get, and Chapel said, well, I'm only going to interview white people because black people lie, uh, so I'm, I'll only get to interview black, white people about this black person and see what they, what they know about him. So what they found, uh, both of them found, is that while people had heard the song, it wasn't clear whether they'd heard the song on the radio or, or not, and there didn't seem to be any kind of evidence of, of a John Henry. They found no uh, evidence of a steam drill being used in the Big Bend Tunnel. They found no evidence of a person named John Henry in the census anywhere near there. Um, they found no evidence, in fact, of, of um, they found some evidence of black, uh, black workers on, this, on the site, but, but really nothing. And so they, both of them kind of gave up at the end of uh, both of their books. And lots and lots have been written about it since then. Now, if you look at the chapel and, and other uh, images, uh, other interviews with um, folks in the 1920s and 1930s, they give you this image of John Henry as a powerful man. They say he's six foot eight. He had a rhinestone belt buckle. And uh, he was a black man who could, who could charge any amount of money for the steam drilling that he did. Now, from what I knew about Reconstruction, period right after the Civil War, 
African Americans. This idea that a black man, powerful black man, could command any amount of money for the work that he did seemed uh, a little bit problematic to me, the whole, the whole story. But I did know about this man, Collis Potter Huntington, the person who has, is uh, responsible for the CNO Railroad uh, in some part. There had been uh, a railroad that the Virginia had built got all the way up to Crozet Tunnel and it stopped there, uh, stopped at the mountains, been unable to penetrate those mountains. Huntington promised that if the entire railroad was given to him and none of the debt was given to him, that he would build it and finish it to the Ohio River in five years. Uh, the Virginia legislature, which had, uh, it had this huge debt but had not been able to make very much from, the, from this railroad, uh, handed it over to him that it probably, um, snickering under their breath because they figured they'd get it back in five years because nobody could go through those tunnels. But Huntington uh, was an important man. He'd, he'd been for, helped to form the Republican Party in California. He was a person who sold shovels and things like that to uh, a, mer a merchant in California, uh, to people in the gold rush. And he had built the Central Pacific Railway, uh, or helped, helped in the construction of that. He had overcharged the gov federal government by roughly 1,000%. Uh, he still owed them three and a half million dollars at the end of uh, 1872, which he never paid them. And um, luckily that kind of corruption doesn't happen in Washington now, but uh, at the time it was a fairly serious problem. Um, so this is the man who, who took over uh, the Chesapeake and Ohio Railroad. And, and the way that he'd gotten through those tunnels was the thing uh, that let him know that he was going to be able to complete this. He had um, worked on uh, the Central Pacific, and by working on it, that means he had hired uh, Chinese convicts to, uh, Chinese workers to come over from, uh, to, to engage in this construction. And he had a new invention. Uh, that invention was dynamite. He had figured out, uh, that just, just recently, Alfred Nobel had figured out that if you mix uh, nitroglycerin with uh, dirt or uh, some, some other sort of stable substance, you roll it up in a, in a roll and very carefully you can move it from place to place and blow things up. And uh, nitroglycerin, the TNT or the dynamite or these other things do, uh, that, are, that are created in this period have 10 times the power of penetration in, in the side of a mountain that gunpowder did, which is previously how uh, this construction works. So it's a very cheap way, relatively cheap way, to build a tunnel. And um, Huntington knew this. But he also knew that uh, no one who had any experience with tunneling wanted to work near dynamite, uh, this new substance. And that's partly why he had to get workers who were, had come by contract all the way from China to do this work for him, because the Irish and Welsh and other workers who had, had been miners refused to do the work. And they died in huge numbers in the construction of these tunnels. So I thought, if this was, and he did, he did this during the Civil War in 64, 65, and uh, a couple of years afterwards. And so I thought, well, is this the most dangerous, if this is the most dangerous work that you have to get people all the way from China to do the final construction for you, how could it have been a work that you could command any amount of money for in 1868 uh, or 69? It seemed unlikely to me. And this is the thing, uh, the final thing that I, little thing that I knew, and that was uh, about this place, the Virginia Penitentiary. I had read in the, uh, was reading about the Southern Railway and was interested in, uh, I knew that Tom Scott, the person who put the Southern Railway together, was very interested in uh, convict labor. He was very, very uh, keen on getting a hold of convict labor uh, and was unable to do so in 1870, in 1871, because Collis Potter Huntington, for some reason, had a very close relationship with the uh, Republican governor, uh, Virginia. This Again, this probably surprises you a great deal. Um, but uh, all of the convicts in the Virginia Penitentiary that were able-bodied were being shipped out to uh, the Chesapeake and Ohio Railroad at this time. And so I was, as I was following this sort of convict uh, discussion in the, in the letters, I was, I was struck by uh, the convicts uh, stuff. And I found this document in the Library of Virginia. Uh, and, and it stuck with me at the time, uh, back when I was working on the, on the first book. And uh, as you'll see here, uh, very briefly, it says, this is the, the report from the surgeon, chief surgeon, um, chief doctor at the Virginia Penitentiary. And he says that while it's true that 10% of the prisoners are dying each year in the Virginia Penitentiary, that it's not his fault that these people are being returned in a weakened condition, working on the Chesapeake and Ohio Railroad. Many of them have consumption and they're dying in Richmond, but it's not, not his fault. So when I found this document uh, back in 1994, 
I was puzzled by it, I was, but I didn't really know what to make of it. Uh, I, I read it through, and then I tried to look, figure out if there was any more information about this, about this story. It, it, it puzzled me. Um, and I couldn't find anything, and, and that was surprising because there were a lot of railroads. There were three railroads at the time, the Richmond and Danville, uh, which became the Southern, Ra the Southern Railway, the um, Chesapeake and Ohio, and the Baltimore and Ohio. The three of them are competing in Richmond. Each of them buys a newspaper in Richmond, uh, which, not surprisingly, then begins to extol the virtues of uh, one or the other of those railroads. So each of them owns a newspaper in Richmond. Um, each of them has spies that they're sending to the other railroads to figure out what they're doing. And so there are these fantastic spy reports from the 1860s and 1870s about what the other railroads are doing. But not in the papers and not in the spy reports did I find any other mention of these horrific death rates, these, uh, the Chesapeake and Ohio Railroad or the construction. So I put the stuff away, um, material away. And the great thing about hard disks is you can just put more and more information on it and they just keep giving you more, big, more and bigger hard drives. So. Um, but so I, I kind of went back after the first book and, and was uh, my, my advisor suggested I write something about John Henry. I figured that John Henry was a mythical character. And so um, I, I followed the story of, of uh, John Henry and I, I was mostly interested in why trackliners sang the story of John Henry. Why was it so popular in the South? Why did so many people know this song? Uh, and as I was doing this, I was listening to the various versions of the song for the first time. I'd heard it a few times but not listened carefully to the various lyrics. And I made this image my background screen uh, because I knew, I felt that there was some story here. Um, now, why there's a postcard of the Virginia Penitentiary might be a question to you, might be a caution. You wonder what that's about. You can think about what you'd write on the back. You saw this place and thought of you, or <laughs> wish you were here, right? Uh, but. But big historical uh, buildings like this, big, big buildings like this were, were uh, common shots for, for, um, for uh, postcards in uh, 1904, 1905. And so that's, uh, I th it's a great image in a way because it, I was gonna talk about, a little bit about the, uh, the convicts who were working on the CNO and, and the track lining. And uh, it's a kind of a grim image, and I don't know if, you've, if you're familiar, you sit down at a computer and the first thing you do is you check your email, and then you look on the web, and then you look something up on Wikipedia and whatever. So uh, you could change your background screen to the thing that you're working on so that every time you sit down, you think about that. I'm out, I teach at William & Mary, and so my first thing I do is sit down as I check my email. The second thing I do is start to write letters of recommendation. The third thing I do is start to grade, and so you don't get a lot written that way. And so. I made this image my background screen. It's a kind of way of getting me to work and also it's a kind of a grim image that makes you think if I don't get this paper written by the time I present it, then I'll be in trouble. Um, and as I was, was uh, working on this uh, paper and thinking about the song and looking at the image, I was struck by the last line of many versions of the song. They took John Henry to the White House and they buried him in the sand. Every locomotive comes roaring by, says there lies a steel-driving man. And I was uh, puzzled by this, and so I looked at the, at the interviews about the White House, because as you can see here, there's a big White House, and there's sand next to it and a railroad running by. And, and um, Chapel and Johnson were confused by the last line of this song, too. They said, well, where's the White House? And, and people said, well, the White House where the president is, and John Henry was, was working there. Uh, that's, that's where it came from. And... <laughs> Uh, so it, it didn't seem to make a whole lot of sense to anybody. That, that line just seemed sort of crazy. And um, that's when I remembered the, the bodies. Uh, in 1992, when this area was dug up for the Ethel Corporation, they bought the old Virginia Penitentiary, and they started digging um, on the other side of the White House. And this is where that place where you see a kind of dirt road used to be a path. That photo's from 1904. The path, the railroad was there in the 1870s. And um, between that path and the White House, as they were digging, they found 200 skeletons. Uh, and it was a confusing place. Initially, they thought it was a graveyard, but it didn't look like a graveyard because the bodies had been buried there very haphazardly and kind of on top of each other. Some of them were just a few bones that were thrown into a cigar box. Others were uh, five or six bodies all piled together in something as big as a piano box and tossed. Uh, into, into this. And they're not tossed, they were buried, but they're, they're buried all very close to each other. And, um, and so it's then that I thought that this story of the CNO Railroad and the story of all these convicts working on the CNO Railroad and, and, and the song might be, that, that the song might be a, in a way a song about where the bodies are buried. 
that if you think about the White House and think about the song, that this actually does tell you precisely where the bodies are. This is where the railroad goes roaring by next to uh, the old White House. So starting with that, I, I went a little bit further. I started digging the census. And, um, it's, uh, and, and the census of the Virginia Penitentiary put a man, uh, and, and we think of John Henry as a common name now. It was a relatively uncommon name for black men in uh, the 19th century. In, in all of the South, in the 1870 census, there are 12 men named John Henry. It's a, it's a relatively uncommon name uh, in this period. Um, and I found that um, the, the, one, the one of the few John Henrys, one of the two John Henrys in Virginia, was at the Virginia Penitentiary. And you'll see here it says State Penitentiary. That's where they're listed as. Um, but the records demonstrate that, that uh, the penitentiary records demonstrate that um, he was actually, along with these other workers, out at the CNO Railroad. Um, now, this is, this is, sorry about the, the dimness of it. These are the, these are the penitentiary records. And these are hard won uh, records. They're very difficult for me to get a hold of. It helps that I had blonde hair, I think. Um, I went to the Library of Virginia, and I, I just asked a lot of stupid questions and asked them over and over again. And I think people just kind of let me let it slide because they figure I'm, I'm not, so, not so smart. So I, I, uh, the Library of Virginia, they had these records, but they weren't accessioned. And this is a story that will give a... Um, caution to Lee, I think. I, I uh, w wanted to get access to the penitentiary records. I uh, went to the Library of Virginia, and they said, oh, I'm sorry, those records are closed. There's, and, um, and so I you know, saw the manuscript record, and that's, that's what they said. So I came back two and three and four times, kept asking the same question over and over again. And then there was a new woman at the front desk. And what was interesting about her is that she was not she was about maybe mid to late 20s. So that told me two things. One of them is that she was not just new there. So she was, she'd never, she'd not worked at the library before. She was not brand new there, but she had worked someplace else. And so maybe she wouldn't be as mean to me as the people at the Library of Virginia were. So <laughs> I went back and I said, I'd like to look at the Virginia Penitentiary Archives. And she said, oh, sure, sure, sure. And she opens up and she said, oh, they're closed. I said, it's funny that they're closed because it's public record who gets into the penitentiary and it's public record when they leave. And the records end in 1910, so there's no, no privacy issues here. And she said, hmm, you know, you're right. And so she crossed out clothes for public access. She handed the, uh, <laughs> the manuscript uh, thing back to me. And she said, yeah, go up and I'll call ahead and so you can get a look at the records. And when I got uh, a look at the records, uh, I could see why they were closed. It wasn't, they weren't closed because there were any state secrets in it or anything like that. They were covered with coal dust and nobody had cleaned them off. And so I was, my hands were covered with this black soot by the end of the day, by the end of an hour or so of working through these, these records. But that's when I got a hold of these records. And I found, um, this is John Henry, who's listed as, as uh, in, in this part of the penitentiary as John William Henry. And, um, that, that he's from New Jersey and that he uh, was arrested for the crime of housebreaking and uh, loitering. And, and so I started then, I, I, was, I was kind of, again, I still didn't have any proof. I still didn't have any story. I had is that there was somebody named John Henry. He's a relatively rare name. He had worked uh, on the tunnel, because I see, I found in the, in the penitentiary records that he'd been shipped up to the Lewis Tunnel. He was one of the first workers who was shipped up to the Lewis Tunnel to work uh, alongside them. And I guessed that there had been, digging um, at the Lewis Tunnel. Lewis Tunnel is a much harder tunnel to get through than the, than the Big Bend Tunnel, but I had no, no proof. Um, and that's when, that's when uh, WorldCat came to my, uh, WorldCat is a, uh, to, to my rescue. WorldCat is a thing that has records of um, libraries all over the world. And it has not just books, but also manuscript uh, records. And uh, so I just typed in all the names of the people who were in charge of the, 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 um, these convict groups in the, the Chesapeake and Ohio Railroad. And I found the source that everyone thought had been destroyed. When initially, when, when these, these folklorists went back in the 1920s, wrote their two books about John Henry, the CNO Railroad said all of our records were destroyed in a fire in 1920. You'll never see the construction records of the Chesapeake and Ohio um, tunnel. They're gone. But uh, luckily, someone had worked at the Library of Virginia and stolen the records, apparently, and taken them to Cleveland with them, along with some uh, nice signed letters from Robert E. Lee and Jefferson Davis. I guess this was a sort of a uh, severance package uh, that he had <laughs> arranged for himself. Uh, 
But uh, anyway, he took he took these uh, these records with him to the. Uh, so I, I, it took me a little while to find this out from the because the Western Reserve Historical Society, it turned out, had this little cache of records, which were the construction records for the tunnels on the Chesapeake and Ohio Railroad, including letters back and forth from College Potter Huntington saying, what's the problem with this tunnel? I need to get this tunnel done. We need more steam drills. We need more convicts. And uh, the, this, the, it, was, it was thus that I found um, these, these records. And what they show is that convicts, initially, uh, Huntington's view was that he could solve this problem with technology. He initially had the dynamite, but he still needed those robins uh, nest-sized holes in the side of the mountain, right? You still need to make those little holes to put the dynamite in to blow it up. And that was the choke point. That was a slow portion because to make a hole that was six or seven inches deep uh, took most of a day. And so this is uh, by 1869 uh, and 1870, there are a couple of steam drills that are available. He brings both of them. Uh, down to the Lewis Tunnel to work uh, initially one and then the other. And one of them is a rotary drill, the other one is a kind of uh, um, rotary drill, sort of like a, like a drill that you'd use for, for, uh, deep, uh, for, for digging for oil, and another drill that's sort of a pneumatic drill, it's a little bit like a jackhammer. Those two drills were used at the Lewis Tunnel and um, alongside uh, the, the workers. Now the trouble that Huntington was having was that, like in California, he could not get black or white workers to work in these tunnels alongside the dynamite. And thus, he got a hold of convicts, because convicts could be pushed back and forth into these tunnels. And that's not, it's not that they were scared of the dynamite. The trouble is that when dynamite blows up in a hole, it creates this dust, this nasty dust, which flies around. And miners refuse to work around this dust until it's settled. Huntington is in a hurry. And so he finds that with convicts, he can push them back into the tunnels to dig further and further and further, make more of these pilot holes uh, for the um, uh, construction. So the, what happens is that he uses two drills uh, in 1869 and 1870. Both of them fail. And uh, there's, there's a record as when one newspaper reporter is brought out to the site. He says that the uh, convicts and the tunnel workers, uh, convicts and the uh, steam drill are working side by side, trying desperately to get this tunnel completed by 1871 so that Cunnington can get his work done. And it's there, I think, that John Henry, uh, I'm convinced that John Henry dies. He, like so many other workers, are transported back to um, Richmond because the governor at the time said that uh, initially uh, the prisoners were escaping. The governor said that there would be a fine of $100 for each prisoner not returned. That meant they had to come back to the Virginia Penitentiary dead or alive. And as so many came back dead or in a weakened condition, when they did die, uh, they had to be buried quickly. By 1875, the Richmond City Council tells the Virginia Penitentiary that it needs to create a formal burying ground and move it away from the water supply. Uh, so somebody knows that, there's, uh, that their, their bodies are being buried uh, near this, and the, the water that's coming into Richmond is actually uh, right near here. So, so this, is this, this is the story. It's an ugly story. And, 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 but the question is, why is it a folk song? Why is it so widely distributed? Why are there 200 versions of this song? And that's, uh, that's the, uh, the explanation for that has to do with these people. These are track liners, um, or they're also called gandy dancers or uh, maintenance of waymen. Uh, you needed, in the late 19th century, one person for every mile of track was laid. And they, what they would do, they were responsible gangs of eight to 10 people, uh, sometimes 12, would be responsible for eight, 10, 12 miles of track they travel up and down it every day, and uh, a, a, um, initially a little boxcar would go over the, road, uh, the route and determine if there are any faults. If there is a fault, they'd drop down a red handkerchief. These men would come along and reline the track. And to reline the track, they had to, um, you'd have, th these tracks are initially iron and then steel. They're very, very heavy, 500 pounds, right? And so one, one of these long uh, bars of track. And to move it just a half an inch, or just a quarter of an inch uh, into line, uh, it takes a tremendous amount of effort. And to do this, you need to work in groups, and you need to work at exactly the same time. And so this, this um, is, I think, how we get the first version of the song. John Henry was a little baby. You could hold him in the palm of your hand. Before that kid was nine days old, he was driving.
driving down steel like a man. John Henry told his captain that you're old enough to know that they pay more money on the C of G, Central Georgia, than they do on the M&O Mobile and Ohio. Darling, who's going to buy your slippers? Who's going to glove your hand? Who's going to kiss your rosy cheeks? Who's going to be your man? My brother's going to buy my slippers. My sister's going to glove my hand. My mother's going to kiss my rosy cheeks. So this is the song, and if you think about the, the way that the song works, it's a ballad, right? And in a ballad, it's usually about death and the tragic fate of lovers. Um, and the ballad structure goes way back uh, to the 1600s in um, uh, Scotland and England. Uh, many of the first recorded uh, versions of uh, ballads are, are these. And they're brought up to the mountains of Western Virginia and others by, by Scots-Irish uh, and others. And so there are lots of the last of lock, this, that, that line, who's going to buy your slippers? Who's going to glove your hand? Who's going to kiss your rosy cheeks? Who's going to be your man? Is from the last of Loch Royal, um, initially first printed in 1660. Um, so the ballad structure then becomes a place for the John Henry song. And so the John Henry song, the story of John Henry and this terrible death is put, squeezed inside a ballad structure that's mostly a, a white mountain structure that um, many folks have learned uh, in the past. And so you get this sort of mixture of an African-American tradition where the, you get the rhyming and the, uh, the sort of the, the rhythmic accompaniment, the backbeat, all those other sorts of things that you're used to hearing in African-American music alongside this white herb, uh, white hills uh, structure, which is, which is the ballad. And so the story of John Henry is initially sung by um, this, this song was sung and uh, recorded by John Lomax in 1929 in uh, the Virginia Penitentiary. This song, I think, is the place where the John Henry song starts. It's initially in the 1870s uh, transported by folks who worked on the job site, uh, initially convicts, uh, also miners who were brought into the, onto the site, and also track liners together working on the site. The story, they then bring the story out. The, the many of the convicts who were there die but many of the other people who are around the site hear the story and bring it with them and travel around with them. And so there are at least three different versions of the song. One is a white miner's song. One is a track liner's song. Uh, and uh, one is a convict song. And they have different, uh, different shapes, uh, different um, lyrics in them, and different, but, they, but they diverge in these three different ways, I think, around the time of the 1870s or 1880s. And then they travel throughout the South. These track liners, because the work is so backbreaking, because the work is so difficult, you can only be, you can see these are young men. You can't be a track liner at the age of 35. Uh, all you can be is a, is a kind of straw boss or something like that. It's such hard work. And everybody has to pull at the same time. Everybody has to sing a song that collectively people sing a song to set the pace of the work. Um, I got a gal, lives on the hill. Boom. She won't do it, Boom. but her sister will. Boom. That, those songs, right? Uh, that's a trackliner song. It becomes a blues song. It becomes a rock song, right? And so these songs, which are initially sung to, by by trackliners, mostly about distant loved ones and uh, things like that, become the first blues music, right? These these songs are packaged in a way, and that's why the gap in the middle. I got a gal, huh? Lives on the hill, huh? She won't do it, huh? But her sister will, huh? That. That tells you when everybody's supposed to move at the same time. The John Henry song also is a kind of work uh, song uh, initially. And what better work song to set the pace of work, make it slow enough so that you can survive to the end of the day, uh, than a song about a man who works too hard and dies, 
right? So it's a kind of perfect work song in a way. It's a song that's both a tool, but it also tells you about the dangers of working too fast or too hard. And so this song travels through the South from the 1880s and the 1890s, uh, the 1900s, as these workers, and there are roughly 100,000 black, uh, sorry, 100,000 trackliners, most of them black, in the American South uh, in 1900. It's a vast, uh, you know, this is before real roads exist. Railroads are the, are the primary means of transportation. You've got 100,000 miles of track. It means you have roughly 100,000 of these workers, but one person for every mile. It's the biggest industrial workforce in the South. We don't think of them as industrial workers in that way, largely because they're traveling, largely because they're moving. And you have this, some workers who work in a particular area that's very close to where they live, other workers who are called the extra gang, who are brought in for disasters or for other places where the track has gone out and there's a lot of reconstruction, a lot of relining that has to be done. The extra gang is stronger, uh, but they come from a longer distance, and so extra, extra gangs uh, uh, travel, travel farther. And this is part of the, reason, how, the way in which the song distributes around the South, is by these men who are, who are traveling around the South singing about uh, these stories and carrying uh, these lyrics uh, onward. But by the 19-teens, when you have the, really the birth of the blues, 19-teens and 1920s, the blues songs move away from tracklining songs and move into accompaniment with a guitar or something like that. They become a country song in 1924 with Fiddle and John Carson. Uh, and it's a black and a white song. That's the interesting thing about it is it's, there, there are traditionally black songs, traditionally white songs. This is one that's both, uh, sung by both groups of people. But by the 1920s, to beat a steam drill was impossible, right? In the 1870s, any two of us uh, could have beaten a steam drill. Uh, we'd, we'd need OSHA uh, approval uh, first. But to dig, a, to dig a hole that's seven inches with, with a, um, a uh, uh, you know, hammer and, and this, this, uh, this chisel is, was possible. It took a long time, but you could do it. The trouble with those steam drills, as, as the records of the um, CNO uh, demonstrate, is they were constantly breaking down. Because the power was transmitted pneumatically by, by the force of air, any amount of dust got into the pneumatic structure, and then you'd have to clean it out and empty it out. And, uh, so they were constantly breaking down. And so it was, so uh, it's not surprising that people could uh, have defeated a steam drill in 1870. But by 1910, they were totally sealed. By 1915, they were much more powerful than any, um, uh, any individual worker, any group of workers. And so the song of John Henry then travels along with the story of John Henry. And John Henry becomes a kind of mythical and much more powerful person because a steam drill is now uh, much more powerful. And the idea of beating a steam drill, a song about a man who beats a steam drill, he must be incredible. He must be Hercules, right? And uh, that one of the, one of the, in African-American folklore in the, in the teens, there's, there's a, um, and you, hear, you see this a little bit in the, in the ex-slave narratives, people say, watch out for me, I'm double-jointed, right? And that means I'm strong, I'm powerful. Uh, don't, you know, don't mess with me, because I'm double-jointed. And, and uh, uh, this, this is because in the 19-teens, there was a double-jointed articulated steam drill, which was incredibly powerful. So this is, this is Fred Becker's double-jointed John Henry. You can see those squid fingers, right? This is, this is how he becomes so powerful. Is he's he's double-jointed, and he's got these crazy... He's got double-jointed toes here, you see, too. Uh, and so the figure of John Henry becomes more and more magical, more and more powerful, more and more impossible. Uh, John Henry becomes the, the largest man there ever was. Nobody could beat him. This is an impossibly strong man. And so what does the story of Fun Song of John Henry tell us? It tells us um, a few things. One, about the peculiar nature of um, this, this song, which is able to travel all over the place. It becomes a powerful song for um, miners, white miners, who are working side by side against steam drills, facing the same problems that John Henry and others did, which is basically silicosis. They're in, in, ingesting all sorts of this pulverized rock which gets into your lungs and then kills you. He and many of these other workers die of this. The miners themselves face the same problem working alongside steam drills. It also becomes um, a, a song that's powerful, uh, important as a country uh, song. And country songs are mostly sung not in the country, but in the city, about the country. And they're sung in the South along the lines of the textile mills. It's mostly the textile mill. The textile mill belt, if you're a country singer worth your salt, you traveled along the lines of the Southern Railway, and, and hit each one of the textile mills and, and sold your records there. It becomes a, a, a song of, uh, among them as well because they too are working alongside um, 
uh, mills that are moving faster and faster and what's called the speed up and the stretch out of the 1920s and inhaling this brown cotton dust, which also is going to kill them. They've got make, make very few grandparents in the textile mills of the 1920s. Um, and it also becomes finally, by the 1930s, an emblem, as you can see in this, this image, whoops, uh, above, in the, in the um, bear with me here for a second, um, becomes an image that's important to the Communist Party. The Communist Party latches on to this image of John Henry as um, a, you know, representative of the American working class, representative of the battle against capital, and they're distributed all everywhere that the Communist Party is distributes in the 1940s, which is uh, you know, urban, uh, like Manhattan, uh, Seattle, Cleveland. I mean, the Communist Party is not is a tiny, tiny group of people, but they become fascinated by the by the legend of John Henry, and they uh, uh, champion him and make make this uh, powerful black man a, a kind of symbol of of the party and the fight against capital. And so, this song becomes a kind of important. Um, latching place for lots of different people. It becomes important in the folk music revival as well because um, this is the time that the electric guitar is coming in and folk music, folk musicians uh, despise the electric guitar, despise the sort of electrification of music and champion this, this uh, hand music. And so again, the story of John Henry is a kind of perfect example of this, um, of this fight against the machine. And so the song stretches all over the place. It becomes, it, people take a ter terrible tragedy and turn it into uh, one, of, one of America's most kind of famous and popular uh, folk songs. But in its kind of deepest sense, it's a story not just about triumph, but also uh, an ugly story about the New South, uh, a story ultimately of where the bodies are buried. Thank you. People have questions. Oh, sorry. The mic microphones. Uh, yes. Of sorry. the uh, hundred thousand track liners you referred to, yes. a portion of them would have been convicts. Oh, very few uh, track liners would have been convicts. So um, it's it's mostly the place where convicts are used in the 1870s, anyways, is um, in in tunneling. Uh, so in the 1880s, for example, North Carolina builds its tunnel uh, to connect, you know, the dream of Virginia in the, in the 18-teens, uh, really from, actually from Washington's time forward, is how to get through the Appalachian Mountains and get to the Ohio River and, and make that uh, travel possible. And so in Georgia, western North Carolina, uh, western Virginia, west Virginia, um, it's initially convicts are, are used only in tunneling uh, because it's incredibly dangerous. No one else will do it. Um, uh, there are uh, some convict uh, folks who work uh, in, in this in, in, in track lining. I'm thinking, um, what's this? Uh, the the um, there are some there are some blues musicians who have you know kind of famously been in in uh, prison camps. But it's it's out of the hundred thousand, I'd say I'd say uh, probably less than five percent, a tiny, a pretty tiny fraction of them. Thanks. Are are the convict leasing systems pretty common? Uh, throughout all southern states. I know in South Carolina, uh, Clemson University was built with convict leases. Oh, is that right? Yeah. Wow. Uh, and I was wondering if any large projects beside railroads in Virginia were used, used convict leasing. Um, well, in, yeah, that's, uh, so where else is convict leasing? Convict leasing is, um, it's, it's, uh, it's very important. And it, 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 this, so there's state convicts and there's county convicts. And so the state convicts are, you have to be, um, uh, it has to be a felony, so 10 years or more or something like that to, to end up in the state. And so the state convicts are the ones who end up building, uh, do, doing the biggest kinds of construction because there's a biggest, larger number of them. County convicts, uh, there are a dozen or so at any one time, and so they do, do become a kind of, uh, um, are, are used in, in kind of uglier uh, uh, situations and uh, you know, breaking, breaking rocks and things like that. And they, some of them become effectively almost like slaves in the 1870s days working on, on big farms and stuff like that. But the state convicts, um, yeah, so the, uh, after uh, the hold of Huntington is broken over the CNO, then the, the convicts are leased more broadly. 
and by 1872, the uh, Southern Railway gets a hold of them, and they use them to create uh, to work in the Old Dominion granite granite works. Uh, and the Old Dominion granite works uh, provide most of the granite that's used in buildings throughout Richmond. And so any any buildings that that are that have kind of granite facing uh, on them, built between the uh, 70s and the 90s, is likely to have been um, uh, come from from uh, uh, convict work. So that's, in Georgia, it's, uh, you know, it, it, uh, it's, it's again, l large tunnels that are, the, that are the kind of big. Thanks. We call these people gander dancers. Does that mean anything to you? Gander dancers. Where does it, where does it come from? Yeah. Um, so Gandhi dancer is a, it's a f funny name. I, I, um, one of my former advise professor at, at UNC uh, was a Gandhi dancer. Uh, actually, it was something that college kids sometimes did um, in, in, um, in the summer. And there's a few explanations for where the, get the name comes from. I mean, there are people are singing and they're working at the same time. There's um, the, sto the story, some people say that there's a Gandhi company that produces these, um, the, uh, uh, the thing that they're actually dr drilling with is not a spike, it's not a, you, you see here that John Henry has a, basically a sledgehammer, uh, but this is closer to what John, uh, John Henry and other folks work with is the mall, and it's also what track runners use, the mall. It's basically like a, it's, it's a little bit, looks a little bit like a pickaxe, it's kind of long at the ends. And so the story was that, that the Gandhi company in Chicago produced them, and that's where the word Gandhi dancer comes from. There's no Gandhi company in Chicago, though, uh, in, in this period, so it's, but there is, uh, interestingly, a G&Y company. Uh, G-A-N-D-Y, uh, company that produces uh, metal objects. And so it's possible that G-A-N-D-Y, G-and-Y, becomes Gandhi, which becomes Gandhi Dancer. So the people who are using these Gandhi tools, G-and-Y tools, uh, are, are called Gandhi Dancers. But the term, um, I think, first shows up, um, I don't think it shows up in the 19-teens, I think it first shows up around 1920. That's, that's the first uh, reference I've seen to it. So, and they're, earlier they're called track liners or maintenance of waymen or other things like that, and they become Gandhi dancers. But I think it's because, you know, they're all dancing, they're all moving at the same time, and they're all, they're, they're singing. I, one of the things I've suggested is the step shows, in, to a certain extent, uh, this African-American, again, musical and uh, dancing uh, uh, tradition comes out of uh, the, the, this track lining, because you are both moving and singing uh, in a kind of rhythmic way, unaccompanied. Okay, if hundreds of convicts were used, what made John Henry stand out? Why was he the uh, one picked right. as the focal point of the song? So there's a couple, a couple of things. Um, I think it's a, it's a good question. Well, so there's a couple of things. One of them is, um, I think, because he came from New Jersey. He was the only convict from New Jersey. And how somebody came from Elizabeth City, New Jersey, born in Elizabeth City, New Jersey, ends up in eastern Virginia in 1865 is a story that I cannot really make out. I mean, it's, it's fascinating. He's end up, he ends up right near Petersburg. He's picked up in Prince George County, uh, allegedly for housebreaking and um, larceny. And um, this, that, the case is a problematic one, and it keep, keeps having to be retried um, because uh, larceny requires that, that something be worth $10, and they can't find anything that's worth $10 in the store uh, where, where he allegedly took something from. So um, the... the uh, um, so that's, so part of it is he, his accent would have set him off immediately from everyone else in the prison, because almost everybody else in the Virginia penitentiary um, it's, are, are, uh, um, is black and from Virginia. Uh, th there's another story about why that happens. Basically, the, all these property crimes, which had been misdemeanors in the 1850s, become felonies by the 1870s, uh, 65. And so lots and lots of people who otherwise would have been in, in the county for uh, a month or two end up in the state penitentiary for long periods of time. So the state penitentiary fills up uh, with people. Many of them are from Virginia. The other thing is he's five foot one and a quarter inches tall. He's the shortest person in uh, the penitentiary. Uh, and uh, it seems crazy, right, that, that, that this would be the person who'd be swinging a hammer. But if you think about the way this works, you're drilling these little holes and then you're making a blast. The blast radius has to be that person's height plus the height of the hammer at the top of the swing. And so the people who are hammermen, and there's still hammermen in India and South Africa and elsewhere where, where uh, there's, um, not Zimbabwe and places like that, where, where you don't have a lot of um, other, other technology, the hammermen are small. Uh, they're little men. Uh, and so uh, because you need to be small enough to get inside the tunnel, 
and continually hit that uh, hammer again and again. So it's quite, you know, we, we think of, you know, six foot eight, uh, John Henry, uh, actually uh, would have taken, uh, you know, the tunnel still wouldn't be completed uh, if, if he'd started because, you know, the, the size of the hole has to be, has to be monstrous. Uh, so I think, I think that's why he's the first person who's transported out to this tunnel. And so I think that that par partly too, he's there before everyone else uh, in, this, in a small group of men. The rest of them die off fairly quickly. And so he's, he's in some ways the kind of, presumably the person who tells, tells people you know, what the job is and that kind of thing. There's only one hammer man, that's the other thing. Uh, so while everybody else is what's called a mucker, they're basically pulling out the rocks and things like that, uh, there's only one person who can be the hammer man inside. And so, and so while many of them are dying, uh, John Henry is is the hammer man who's at the center of the of the action and the center of the of the story. I think. Sorry, long answer. Yes. Why is it out in the world that John Henry could be Patrick Henry's brother? Oh, <laughs> uh, John Henry's Patrick Henry's brother. Yeah, I, I, I've heard, I've heard this sort of John Henry, Patrick Henry connection, and, and I think part of it is, well, his last name is Henry. Um, the, there's, uh, and, and Patrick Henry, he was, as an anti-federalist, he, he owned a lot of slaves. There were a lot of people with the last name of Henry uh, in, in um, that, section of, that section of Maryland that were, that were his people. Um, some people suggest that John Henry might, might have been mixed race, so, you know, uh, so not, just, not just a slave of Patrick Henry, but, uh, and some people say that Polly was white, because it has, who, who's gonna kiss your rosy cheeks, right? You wouldn't have rosy cheeks if you were African-American. I think, you know, who's gonna kiss your rosy cheeks? It goes back to the last of Lock Royal. You know, it's just, it's just an old um, song that, that has that line in it, and people don't, people don't change it. Um, so I, yeah, so I'm not, I'm not quite, sh quite sure, but the, uh, that's the other thing I think about a story like this, and that's the thing that's really hard to write about, is that, you know, I need these physical documents. I need handwritten records from the period that I can read that'll tell me uh, this. And what you get in any kind of thing where, where you have a very popular character is a proliferation of explanations that, that rely sometimes on very, very little uh, in, the way of, in the way of sources. I'm confused about the competition between John Henry and the steam drill. The right. folk songs describe it as laying track, and right. obviously that's not what the steam drill was designed for. Right. right. Can you explain that? Yeah. Yeah. No. Right. So, so there's two, um, and and I've, I've, I was kind of fuzzing these things together a little bit. Um, there are the track liners who are lining track, and there are the people who are um, drilling, and they are usually. It's it's more of a mining operation. Than anything else, it's not it's not like track lining at all. Although you do have to line track in the tunnel and things like that, um, and so there are mining songs and track lining songs, and they have slightly different, um, you know, they're sung slightly differently, and the stories are slightly different. Um, so, uh, yeah, so, so my sense of this story is that it's initially a drilling song. It's initially a um, or or a song that's sung around drilling, which is why so many miners know it. Um, but it's a song that's picked up by track liners. And, and it's, uh, while there are many miners that know the song, it's, it's um, track liners, there are more track liners that have the song. There are more track liners that know the song. And so um, you, uh, there are these great um, albums from 1970. I played them, but they're very scratchy um, from, from the uh, 1920s, where it's basically track lining gangs who sing. And so, uh, and they are a song that they sing very, very often is the John Henry song. So it's, um, so what John Henry was really effectively, if you think about the process, is he's a minor, but it's, he's embraced really by track liners. And he, you know, I can ball a jack, I can line a track, I can, uh, uh, I can ball a jack, I can line a track. I, I can pick and shovel too, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and so ball and, to ball a jack is just to go fast. So balling the jack means you're going fast. So I can ball a jack, I can go quickly. I can line a track. I can pick and shovel too. So, so he's he's both. He's got both of that in, in that song. Uh, oh, sorry. One. Yes, I want, you showed uh, two different techniques for drilling in your yes. pictures. There, a two-handed approach and a and a single. Right. 
Um, well, th this, this um, Fred Becker, I don't think, was ever on a railroad. Um, uh, so, so he was an African-American artist. He, he, this is a WPA project that, that he worked on. And, and he's, uh, there's, there's another kind of style that he's emulating uh, here. So, and, and, um, and, and, right, and what he's doing here is, is basically uh, spiking the track, which is, which is neither, um, is something a Gandhi dancer does, but it's not uh, associated with lining the track. But no, it would have been a, um, the Gandhi dancer would have used that maul, that long extended thing, and, and he would use it both for hammering and for moving the track. Um, a, a, somebody who's drilling would just use a sledgehammer because it has to be, you know, small and flat and, you know, a, a sledgehammer that, that uh, hits a chisel. So they're different instruments, they're different operations. Um, the, the, uh, yeah. Oh, two, yeah, well, two hammers, that's, that's I think, uh, poetic license. Uh, I, th I think there's no way that, uh... okay, thanks so much.